Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 66. Likely the last time in series that we cover this passage. Maybe I'll get back around to Isaiah. We will all be very old if that happens. I'm sure we will return to Isaiah time and time again throughout the life and ministry of this church. But as an exposition, it is a bittersweet thing to be ending today. And I yesterday went through the formality of taking my commentaries and study books on Isaiah from my desk, in, right near my desk, to put them onto my shelf. And it was sad. I was kind of depressed a bit doing so because I feel like I've been hanging with the prophet Isaiah for a while and some of uh, the experts about Isaiah. It's like I know most of the commentators I read, several of them have been dead for a while. And I feel like I know these men. I feel like I, I've, I've spent a lot of time with them. Uh, but one thing that I was really grateful for that I've been reminded of today is some of you have thanked me for this series. I thank you for this series. Do you know what it's like to be able to come to a church out of seminary? I mean, guys go to seminary and school thinking they'll get to go to a place that really wants to be as excited about the Bible as we are when we start seminary. And a lot of guys just get water pouring on the fire as soon as they get out because people want, you know, how-to sermons nonstop. But this church sits through three years of Isaiah. Praise God for that. I, I thank you for that. But I think also um, what we've discovered is what Drew Hunter, a commentator, said. Isaiah is a difficult book, but it repays the time and labor given to it. God has given us this book for the increase of our joy. And as we've walked through this 66-chapter prophecy in the Old Testament, we've seen it to be an expression of God's glory against the backdrop of it of our sinfulness. I mean, when we read of the glory of God and we read of the harsh judgment, none of us says, you know, we don't deserve that. We're moved by the awfulness of judgment, but we're also moved by the awfulness of our sin that provokes the holy God. And so Isaiah presents the holy God with no apologies. It says, this is what happens if you want to be in his presence in your sinfulness. This is what will become of you. But here's the thing. You don't have to be in his presence like that. Because the servant of Jehovah has come for you. Rest in him. And now you see the holiness of God in a whole other light. You, you give him praise for his holiness because you recognize it. And you know you could not have any of it if it weren't for the mediator. And Isaiah proclaims this message. It's the message of the Bible that Isaiah proclaims. He just does so in such a grand and majestic way. In a way that you don't see in all of the other, most of the other Bible books themselves. Even Revelation, that we read in such lofty terms, repeats much of what Isaiah has said. St. Jerome, who is in the 4th century, wrote about the picture that Isaiah paints. The picture that we'll see now in these closing verses, 18 to 24. It's a summary. It's a picture of the events of Christ's coming all the way till his coming for the final time, his first coming and his second coming, wrapped up in verses 18 through 24. Jerome says this about Isaiah. Isaiah should be called an evangelist rather than a prophet because he describes all the mysteries of Christ and the church so clearly that you would think he is composing a history of what has already happened rather than prophesying about what is to come. And you'll see that in the passage before us today. Isaiah means the Lord saves, the Lord is salvation. And it's built around God as king in the opening segment, 
the servant in the middle section, and now the conqueror that we have seen in these last chapters. Here, as I read God's inspired and inerrant and authoritative word, Isaiah 66, 18 through 24. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lude, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from, the na- from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters, and on mules, and on dromedaries. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, And from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have read in Isaiah that you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. I pray for your Spirit's ministry of illumination that we might understand your word and be changed. We confess with Isaiah that you are God, and there is none like you. You declare the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done. Your counsel shall stand, and you will accomplish all your purpose, Lord, O Lord, accomplish your purpose through us, I pray, in the name of the faithful servant of Jehovah, the anointed conqueror himself, Jesus. Amen. Verses 18 through 24 paint a final picture not only for Judah, but for all mankind. Now, the Bible unfolds this in several places. This is one of the first places. It becomes more descriptive with each telling of it in the prophets and then into the New Testament. But for now, we get plenty of a picture. We know what is being described, and it's clear enough to us as we read. Now, Isaiah doesn't see it probably the same way we have learned it to unfold. He sees it as this change that will come when Christ comes, when the servant of Jehovah comes. Um, How long it takes for the particulars to work out, he doesn't know as a prophet. He just knows it will work out. And here's what's so encouraging about studying this passage, closing with this, this climax to the book. It's meant to encourage the people of God in every era. Um, the reason is, as we've discovered um, the timelessness of God's truth, uh, the boldness of his proclamation about his glory, um, it doesn't matter what the pressures of the nations are on God's people. God tells God's people to give him glory, um, to tremble at his word, to believe in his promises, rest in his promises, rest in the redemption that is theirs in him. He wants his people to always have this straight so when the pressures do come, we don't fold. We don't need to fold because we know what happens. 
Um, This is a picture to give us encouragement as a church, as the church, as the people of God. No matter what the culture tells us, that will come and go. The The word of the Lord never fades. It constantly shows itself true. So when the pressure comes on, don't bow to the pressure. Stay being the church. Stay being that entity that glorifies God, that draws people to the glory of God so that they might know of God's glory and holiness and be impacted by that holiness and seek his redemption. The church has to stay true to this so that the world can know how they might be right with this God. That's the method God uses primarily to bring the nations to himself. We should have courage when we read this picture from Isaiah to withstand whatever comes our way, whatever presses upon us, whatever threatens us, to keep being the church that God's called us to be, to proclaim the message of his glory, salvation through his Son. God is working to draw all people to witness his eternal glory, and everyone will witness this eternal glory. That's the picture painted for us. God is working even now to draw all people to witness his eternal glory. We're in that part of this text where he's drawing the nations. At some point, that will come to an end, and he'll come again. The beauty of this is he hasn't come yet, so we can still repent. People can still repent. We still preach this message of the judgment of God and the salvation of God, and people come to him. It's a blessed thing, because this won't go on forever. But here we are, able to read this and consider it again, and heed this call to come to him. For those who have come to him, to give him the praise that he deserves, and be obedient in sharing this message of God's glory, salvation through Christ to everybody we meet. All people will behold God's glory. They'll either do it as redeemed people or people who are righteously judged, but everyone will proclaim his glory. We see the purpose for the world in verse 18. A complex verse in the Hebrew translates in a difficult manner, but this in the ESV helps us enough. Verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. This relates back to verse 17 when he's speaking of those who are walking through empty religion. But this applies across the board about God's knowledge. For I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and see my glory. He's letting Judah, the original audience, know the time is coming where he will start drawing the nations to himself so they can also see Jehovah in all his splendor. God looks at the world and does what no other being can do. He knows our works, and he knows our thoughts. He can judge like nobody else can judge. No one can do what God does. And the time is coming, it says in verse 18, to gather all nations and tongues. So, he will fulfill the very thing promised through Abraham that the nations would be blessed. Judah's thinking just about Judah right now. They want restoration. They want to stand up against Babylon. They want their place in the world back. They want their temple to be known as one of the great wonders of the world again. But God's vision for this is way bigger. His promises to Abraham would be fulfilled in a much wider way than just one nation and one locale. This would be through the nations of the earth being blessed by his revelation starting here through Judah and his picture of Christ to come. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come to do what? They shall come and they shall see my glory. 
that's the end result, the end goal we should desire, is that everybody sees God's glory, that everybody gives him the worship and the praise that he deserves. We often think personally about being saved from God's judgment, saved from hell. Absolutely. This is like the prime benefit for you and I. But the reason for it is so that we might render the praise that God deserves. That's the end goal. That's, that's our chief end is to bring glory to God. God's chief end is to bring glory to God. And he does so in this fashion. And he does so by displaying his glory. Now, how is God's glory revealed? There are multiple ways in which God's glory uh, may be revealed. Um, the creation itself, even in, under, the, under the curse of the fall, still reveals a glorious designer. Uh, it's beautiful in all of its intricacies. It's just, when you look upon it, it, would, it takes an active act of disobedience almost, or an, an active ignorance to not see that God has designed all of this. So God's glory can be seen in creation for sure. But the way God reveals his glory in this setting is twofold. When he brings his presence upon us in this gaze, one of two things will happen. Either we will be found redeemed in him, according to his promises, saved, or will be judged totally rightly because we stayed in our sins. Both bring glory to God. His salvation and his judgment both bring glory to God. There will be no loss of God's glory on this final day that's, building toward, that's being built towards. So God's glory will be revealed to all flesh, both by salvation and judgment, and both will be right. The reason salvation is right is because of how he has provided for it in the just payment of his son, the servant of Jehovah. The reason why it will, it will, because it will be right in judgment is because we deserve exactly what we get in rebellion to God. Salvation and judgment will be revealed and God's glory will be revealed and it will be an eternal revelation of his glory that never ends. It's in perpetuity. It's forever. God's glory. This has to do with these two activities of judgment and salvation, but it has to do with his being. He is the supreme one, supreme over everything. His glory has to do with his otherness. Whenever we think of someone high in some category, we're always stuck because that person's at best second to God. In every way you can imagine supremacy, God is that. And he deserves all credit, all accolades, all celebration. Any amount of worship should go to him. That's what his glory is about. And they, verse 18, shall come and see my glory. This is the gathering that God is doing when he tells Judah he's forecasting the time for the servant to come. The servant comes, does the work on the cross that's described in Isaiah 52 and 53, and then from that place he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father and draws the nations to himself. That's where we are now. That's what's unfolding now. And this ultimate purpose is to bring all those the Father has called to himself to redemption so that we might collectively give him the praise that he deserves. How will he accomplish this gathering? Look at verse 19 to 21. How will he manifest his glory to the nations? Well, it says in verse 19, 19 to begin, <clears throat> I will set a sign among them, and from them, I will send survivors to the nation. So there will be this judgment of sorts. There will be survivors. This is still talking of those who are from Judah, apparently. 
I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations. Now, the nations that are listed there were known nations in the time of Isaiah's writing. To Tarshish, Pool, to Lud, who draw the bow. These are descriptors that people would have known. To Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away. They're not meant as the only literal nations that would be reached. It's their metaphors or their impressions of the widest outreaches of earth that people would have known, where the name of Jehovah had not yet been forecasted. So it's a missionary enterprise that he's forecasting. To this point, Judah was about being God's people. They're supposed to be distinct. They're supposed to be separate to show this distinction that God had redeemed them and so forth. But they didn't do that. They blended with the nations, and they weren't the witness they should have been. But God's bringing about a time where his people will actually go out by commission to bring people to him with this message. And that's what's being forecasted. Verse 19 again. I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, and then he names them, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. So people will go from his people, declare to places that have never heard, and what will they declare? God's glory. And as they declare God's glory, they declare the truth about God, the things we've mentioned. People, when they are confronted with God, the right response is, oh no, I'm not right with that God. And so it goes part and parcel to then share the message of the gospel with. So the glory of God is connected to the proclamation of the gospel. To behold the glory of God, to rightly be able to render him praise, we have to be right with him through Christ. And so it's, it's synonymous. To declare the glory of God is to declare his gospel, how we can be right with him so we might worship him. But notice what will set this off, verse 19. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations. What is this? Is this a particular historic incident um, forecasted in the time of Judah that would happen, that would set this thing in motion, that would start gathering the saints? I think we can say there's a good chance this is clear enough. Now, commentators differ. I won't say otherwise. One says the sign here might be a supernatural terror in the work of judgment. I think that's right, but this commentator won't say what it is. He goes on. Or as the context makes more probable of supernatural deliverance. So it could be some judgment or some deliverance from judgment. It'll be a clear sign is what he says. You know, Isaiah talks about signs, a uh, sign of the, that the virgin will conceive and bear a child. That's in the seventh chapter. There are other times where signs or things that are meant to signify God's special activity. One commentator talks about sign in verse 19 here, I will set a sign among them. He suggests that this sign is the resurrection of the Lord. That was the thing that set off this engrafting or this gathering from the nations. One commentator is typified as being less venturesome, finding the prophet's words merely a suggestion of some mysterious event which he leaves his awestruck readers to imagine. That may be true. Oswald, a commentator I respect, says it seems to be best to leave the answer to the question as broad as possible. Maybe. But look at verse 19. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations. So something will happen that will change the identity of Judah as they know it, and from a remnant will go from them a people who evangelize, who have spread this message of God's fame and his glory. When we start to think of how the, Old, the New Testament addresses these kinds of themes, we quickly come to Jesus. 
Now, commonly in American evangelicalism, when we get to Matthew 20, or, yeah, Matthew 24, people think this is talking about the end times when Jesus comes the last time. But as I've studied this, I've become less convinced that that's what Matthew 24 means. Remember, Jesus is speaking in a generation that has been forecasted for centuries. He is the fulfillment, the servant of Jehovah. He has come and fulfilled manifold prophecies in his short years on, life, on the earth at the time he was there, and really only in a three-year period, hundreds of prophecies. Now he's going, eventually, to die on the cross and ascend into heaven. So now he's speaking in Matthew 24 about some events that will happen. Now remember this, because Isaiah is saying, I will set a sign among them, from them survivors will go and they'll gather the nations. Now listen to Matthew 24 in this light. Jesus left the temple, he's in Jerusalem, and was going away when his disciples came to, to point out to him the buildings of the temple. I wonder if the disciples aren't speaking of some pride about the building, the temple itself, because it was a, a masterpiece. Even in the ancient Roman world, it was considered one of the great masterpieces. So the disciples are walking with Jesus, and they're looking at the temple. The temple's what? It's a descriptor of God with Israel, God with his people. And even the Romans couldn't mess that up, they're thinking. It's a sign of God's eternality. It's a sign of his awesome presence. And they're looking at this building with this bit of pride. It's pride in the Jewish identity. The very thing that they had been failing at over and over again since the times of Judah and Isaiah and before that, they're sharing a bit of pride with Christ about this. Matthew 24 again. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to a point came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But, adversative, but Jesus answered them. You see all these, do you not? The complex, the temple, everything. Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's an incredible thing to say. This is not an, uh, an, era, of, uh, an era of warfare with bombs and things that could easily blow up walls. Um, well, what would it take for a first century army to, up, to turn over stones? It would have to be a massive massacre and wipeout. And Jesus says, this thing you got pride in that represents Jewish pride and so forth and, and how we are, but it's going to be wiped out is what Jesus says. Now remember what it says back in Isaiah. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations. Later in Matthew 24, for the sake of time. We can go all day on Matthew 24. For verse 5. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray, which happened exactly after Jesus ascended into heaven. That period of time now, before the apostles were in earnest doing their ministry and so forth, and in that time span, all sorts of people cropped up. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. There was all sorts of threats to the Jewish nation at that time from Rome. They were sick of the Jews. They're about ready to squash them. That's how the Romans did their diplomacy. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, which is exactly what happened to the believers in that first century, especially the apostles. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, remember back where we, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations. Verse 13 of Matthew 24, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I believe that Isaiah has prophesied the same thing Jesus has prophesied, which took place some 37 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And the Romans came in with a swoop unlike even normal Roman swoops, wiped out Jerusalem. The massacre was plenteous. If you read what Josephus says in description, it was an awful bloodbath that happened that left no stone unturned. In fact, if you go to Rome now, there are only three triumphal arcs left in the ancient Rome, and one of them is an ode to the destruction of Jerusalem. With that destruction, there's more than something that happened that was, that was geopolitical. This was the end of the Jews as a noteworthy identity because of their temple and their sacrificial system, wiped out, gone. But from the survivors... From the dispersal that happened from that place in Jerusalem, the gospel went out to Judea. And then from Judea, it went to the uttermost parts of the world. Verse 19 of Isaiah 66. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pool, to Lud, and all these places that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. The beauty of Old Testament missions, Old Testament missions is about bringing people to come to see the glory of God. That's what you had at Jerusalem. That's what you had with their temple. People could come, but they had to come that way. New Testament missions has the dispersal from, from that Jerusalem now renewed, and we go out by God's commission through Christ to go bring them in. And so the picture of Jerusalem even starts to change and to clarify as to what it is God is working. Moitir says, uh, when you put together the Old Testament view of missions and now the New Testament view, these views constitute the missionary obligation of the church to create a magnetic community and to share a saving message. Notice, the church has the same message, the message of God's glory, the message of how we can be right with God through Christ. We keep that message. We don't shake from it, but we go out and invite others to hear that message. That's the forecast of Isaiah. That is revolutionary. We say that's how we do missions. That's because we've come to understand the fulfillment of Scripture. But when God's people heard this the first time, they were only thinking of Judah. And that's not the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So much more intended in God's covenant promises now being realized right under our noses. We get to watch this happen because most all of us are Gentiles. And it keeps going. It keeps spreading. And it cannot be stopped. Uh, We we get nervous about things that happen in our nations and in our locales, about the freedoms of the church. The church just needs to keep being the church even if they kill us because it will grow. It will keep growing, and that's all it's ever done. It's never stopped. It cannot be stopped. That's the beauty of this message. This should give encouragement to the people of God. This is the picture of what he's doing. He's drawing in the nations. He's not stopped by governments. He's not stopped by cultures. He will do his work of building his church to the end. If we haven't learned anything from Isaiah, I hope it's that God is absolutely sovereign over the growth and success of his church. 
Verse 20, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries, a kind of camel, to my holy mountain Jerusalem. So you're going to go out and bring them in and they're going to come into my presence. That's what Jerusalem means here. It's not just that locale in Palestine. They're going to come to my holy mountain, verse 20, Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offerings in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, just as they would bring an offering from their first fruits that show of God's provision, so you will bring those converts, those people who've heard my name and called upon me, you'll bring them as an offering to Jerusalem. Now, what, does it, what is this referring to? Well, Jesus says in John 11, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus is already predicting this while he's on earth. Then he says it in his great commission. Then the apostles live it out in their, their practice of missions. But what is this Jerusalem that they're supposed to be brought into? We're not supposed to be focused in on the locale. It's got to be much bigger than that. When Paul writes to the Galatians, He uses Jerusalem. Listen to how he says Jerusalem. This will help us understand what he means. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai. He's using the metaphor of Abraham and Sarai and Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, the locale. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. He's talking about something far greater than the locale. And she is our mother. Jerusalem is the eternal heavenly state. That's the place where God's, it's just descriptive of God's presence. All of this is language that helps us get an idea because it's human language with human images. It's way greater than any of this. It's just what we can handle. Later in Hebrews, but you have come to Mount Sinai and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So Jerusalem has to do with God's presence in finality, in his eternal glory, in the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, synonymous with the presence of God. The heavenly Jerusalem, Hebrews 12, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And then, of course, Revelation 21, which you cannot understand without first reading and understanding Isaiah. Revelation 21, the first two verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, repeated exactly like in Isaiah twice before and then in this passage ahead of us. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Back to the text before us, verse 20. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and in litters and on mules and dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a, in, in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. The first coming of Jesus and the final coming of Jesus wrapped up in these final verses. And verse 21 would have been, there's so many shocks for the original Israelite listener. Verse 21. And some of them also I will take for priests and Levites, says the Lord. Wait a minute, this is too far. It's bad enough that you're saying it won't just be the Israelites that are his favorite ones. Now you're saying that some, only some Israelites could be Levites who were priests who acted as mediators. No, I'm going to call them from, from them too. 
Of course, what he means in a larger sense is the, the new Jerusalem only has one priest. It's the great high priest. In everyone else, it's a kingdom of priests. I'm going to make from the Gentiles your brothers and your sisters, and they will have the same access to me as you do through Christ. Finally, verse 22 to 24. God's glory, this picture of full, open, eternal display. Now, you might find interesting that some of the early translators, when they were going through the the manuscripts of Isaiah, some of them didn't like verse 24. They thought it it was a negative ending. And they literally put 24 in front of verse 21. Now, it got caught immediately. It was one of, it's actually one of the greatest examples of how it didn't work to try to change the text. We ought not change anything in the order even. You'll see why it's important. Verse 22 and verse 23 are a picture of this eternal glory on, of God on full display where God makes a new creation to display himself in his splendor. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. It's a promise of eternality. It's a promise of forever. It's a promise of unbroken fellowship. The fellowship broken with the first heaven and the first earth would be remade and it wouldn't happen again. The paradise that was lost where there was no more direct communion with God was regained now through the servant of Jehovah. And verse 23 shows how this is a guarantee of permanence. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, that means there won't be special times. It'll all be about worshiping God and everything we do. And it doesn't mean a formal worship service forever in heaven. It means what it was before the fall without the possibility of falling any longer. That kind of worship. And all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Now, Isaiah doesn't have the full picture of what this final judgment would look like. We know from other passages how he splits. There are two humanities. There's no question. Those who are redeemed and those who are not. But all flesh will come before the Lord and worship before him, says the Lord. In verse 24, it does end on a negative note. And they shall go out And look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. So who are they? Those who are redeemed, those who are brought, those who are worshiping, will have opportunity to see what they've been saved from. You know, in history, something we've really lost that we have at our church, and it's only by chance. It's by God's providence. We have a cemetery next to the church. It's not our cemetery. Many of you have bought plots there. I know, because I've gone there several times with people who are buying plots, and the guy keeps telling me, this is like Redeemer's side over here coming up. So at the resurrection, we're going to have a whole bunch of us that are, at least our bodies will be back together again in that moment. But that cemetery is helpful. As you walk out, you remember the importance of the message you heard and hear. Because you will not escape that place. At least your body will not. Nobody here will unless Christ comes first. But for you who are in Christ, you know that shell will be brought again to life. And your soul will be reunited to it in a restored fashion just as Christ's restored body was and is and exists now. But that reminder of that place helps us take seriously the message of this place. So on this final day, it's described this way. I don't know how it will work out perfectly because these are human terms to help us understand to the degree we can. 
and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. There will be an ongoing payment, an ongoing destruction, as it were, in a way only God understands, that will, for eternity, proclaim God's justice against rebellion. If God's own people will come before him with a joyful, with joy, perpetually, those who rebel against him will die perpetually. Judgment or hope? These are the choices the reader of Isaiah is left with. Oswald says, in concluding his comments on the book, thus only two categories of people exist, those who fall before him in worship and those who foolishly rebel against him. This in turn means that only two fates are possible for the human race. Those who worship him will live forever, their seed and their name secure. But those who rebel against him will die forever, their works and their fire unending. What a conclusion to this book, verse 24. Alec Moitier captures the essence of Isaiah by writing, There is a grandeur about Isaiah not found elsewhere, even in the most majestic portions of the rest of Scripture. But with Isaiah's grandeur, there is a stern resoluteness. If Isaiah's description of God's glory does not win us to a life of obedience, if visions of the coming king, the sin-bearing servant, and the liberating anointed conqueror will not suffice, then maybe the unmistakably horrible rewards of disobedience will drive our wayward hearts to tremble at the word of the Lord. I want to conclude with a brief overview of our study. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear. The earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. Later in the same chapter, 1. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah 6, as Isaiah stands before, as he stands before God, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim, an angel, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. That's Isaiah. Then Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness. That's us. We've seen a great light. His word has revealed it. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah chapter 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary like we do. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Isaiah 43, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, not if, but when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God. Fear not. The 52nd chapter of Isaiah. How beautiful, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says, Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah 53. Surely he, God, God himself, the servant of Jehovah, has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. The 61st chapter of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Isaiah chapter 63. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger my, and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of my vengeance was in my heart. Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence. Isaiah 65, God says, I was ready to be sought. I was ready to be sought by those, and you did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. Isaiah 65, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble 
and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. If Isaiah were alive today, he would say to all Christian believers, the Lord saves, and he starts with you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord God, you declare through Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Lord, we believe what you have said, and know that it is true. Lord, through the blood of Jesus, we ask for you to help us understand what you have said in your word and to live it out, to obey, to practice this. We ask for your Spirit's aid to bear the message of salvation that your word so clearly proclaims. And we know, O Lord, that your zeal, not our zeal, is what will work through us to declare that you save sinners through Christ. I pray this in the Messiah's name. Amen.